Pod Pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. This week is an exciting episode because it's a new role I'm exploring on the podcast and I was definitely a little bit out of my comfort zone with the terminology, but it was one of those interviews where you're just reminded of A, what a collaboration the filmmaking process is, like truly it requires the expertise of so many people to make it happen and be the scope and work it takes to finish a film and and obviously you know criticism of films is valid you know it's it's a necessary art and discipline but it also is you know kind of a mi- mini miracle that any film gets made and this interview reminded me of that um you know it it, it made me it made me fall in love i guess again with the the magic of cinema but also, you know, at the same time as revealing the painstaking work it takes to create that magic. So yeah, I'm excited to share it with you. Without further ado, my guest is Rachel Tate, a BAFTA award-winning dialogue and ADR supervisor slash editor, whose credits include 1917, for which she won the BAFTA, upcoming Bond film No Time to Die, The Rhythm Section, All the Money in the World, and The Martian. We talk about how Rachel got into this line of work, what exactly ADR is, and how she works with actors to try and recreate their performance in the studio, why she perceives her job to be more of a craft than a technical role, and how she achieves authenticity so that every word or breath you hear in a film feels like it belongs. Just to note, this was recorded on Zoom and Rachel's dog Jeffrey does occasionally make an appearance. This is episode 86 of Best Girl Grip. I always tend to like to start in the kind of field of higher education because I think that's often where maybe we get our first sense or flavour of what we might want to do um, in the real world. Um, so I'm wondering where you went to university, if in fact you did go and what you studied there. Uh, yeah, I did go to university. I went to Nottingham Trent University and did a BA in media production. But I have to say that before I went there, I'd already started at Delane Lee, uh, which is a audio post house in Soho so I'd already started there as a runner and then decided I'll take the opportunity I'll go to university but after that I just went back to (laughs) Delaney so in my case it, it, it was useful because it added the chance to do camera operation and other parts right. of the business so I was already familiar with sound and that gave me other options as well. Which begs the question at what age or you know what spurred that interest in audio and post-production you know how come you were already working there? It was pure luck that I got a job there it was just there's a website called Mandy dot com and I was scouring it every day after I finished college looking for runners jobs and applying for hundreds so many jobs so many interviews in in production I didn't know anything about sound when I finished college it wasn't really a part of my media course there so I didn't know anything about sound much as a specific type of job I had no idea Mm. so I just looked for runners jobs runners jobs and there was one that was said film industry and I was like being film industry yes anything yeah and I just applied and then I went and they went yes just you know it's the sound and I went okay I guess and then they look around and oh okay there's mixed theaters are cool with all the faders and stuff and Mm -hmm. And it was just through being around final mixes and ADR sessions and the people. And I thought this is actually a little goldmine for creativity and no one really Mm. knows quite what goes on. It's like a dark art. I even went off and did camera for a few years and boom opt. And just just because I thought being on set is probably even cooler. Mm. And it is in certain ways, but in other ways, I find it's more restrictive for sound anyway, because mm. you just have to get the best recording you can and you have to stay out of the way of the camera and not cast a shadow. Mm. And that's it. You can't, you're not building, you're not creating, you're not building sounds, not in the same way. So for me, it was for creativity's sake, I went back to post. And did you get a sense quite early on of kind of the career ladder or like the different roles within the sound department and maybe what specifically within that you wanted to do? Once I'd been a runner at Delaney, while I was at uni, actually, I went back every summer as a summer job. And so I'd done it over a good few years. And then I eventually got promoted to the role of ADR recordist which is when you have a session, there's a mixer on the faders and the EQing, mm-hmm. and there's me. I record it, and then I cut it into sync and mm-hmm. get it ready to play back to the actor so they know if it yeah. works or not. 
So that was a little role that I did there. And that was when I realized the importance of good dialogue and mm. getting the performance to sing. And just it's it's such an important you could spend years and years doing effects editing and then you could have a whole scene muted and they play music all over it, but they're never going to mute the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's the story. I also found my sort of mathematical sort of exacting kind of mind found it good in that when it's right, it's just right. Whereas effects, there's a million different opinions on that and it can sort of seem right to someone and it's not right to someone else. And it's great. This is very a lot of the time it's just, wow, that's amazing or that's awful. And I really liked the black and whiteness of it. Mm. So I'm wondering then what your kind of your first official credit was. Well, in my head, my first official credit is a George Clooney film called The Monuments Men, which right. is set in World War Two. It came out in 2014. That was the first time I was a properly a non-assistant, full dialogue editor. So that, mm. to me, is my first credit. But my actual first credits ever, about 2007, I started getting credits as an ADR recordist. I think Born on Tomatum was my coolest credit. <laughs> that was the one I was, like, telling friends and they were just like, <laughs> you know. And how many, you know, roughly how many credits were in between kind of that that moment of being an assistant? You know, how many projects did you feel like you had to work on before you were let, like let loose kind of with all the with all the kit and able to do it for yourself? Yeah, well, after I was an ADR assistant, I got put on a crew and the bottom rung of the ladder for sound crew is called sound assistant. Right. So I assist all the dialogue editor, effects editor. I just give them the picture and everything they need and take their files and mm -hmm take them where they need to go and I was assistant on only a couple of jobs I was quite lucky I think that it was luck in that we got to the end of a film called Captain Phillips and the dialogue supervisor on that happened to not be able to quite finish the film because of a scheduling conflict and so I knew the film, although I was known the assistant, I still knew it better than a, a new dialogue editor coming in. So they just said, just go to the final mix, sit at the dialogue station and just do whatever you need to do. And I actually apparently did it all right. And then from then on, I was the dialogue editor. So it's just a weird opportunity comes up like that and you just have to kind of grab it. Mm. So I was only an assistant for a couple of films. And was that scary? Like, did you feel like you had the confidence in yourself to kind of step up when it was required of you? I still don't have the confidence. <laughs> really? It's uh, something I'm always trying to, uh, I'd love to have that American confidence they have. Like, hey, yeah, I've got it. I just, uh, no, I was sweaty, clammy the whole time, just very, and you're sat right in front of the director. The director's right there. Right. And picture editor's right there. And they're just like, um, can you make that line sound like this and this? And you're yeah sure and you just put your cans on and you just mm -hmm. god, and then you just play it in front of everyone in the room and they go yeah that's it oh thank god god it's just it's it's like trial by fire it's it's, it's really it's so nerve-wracking because we're so used as dialogue uh, as any editor mm. uh, to sit in a room on your own in the dark and just work away on your own with no friends and then you go to a final mix and everyone's watching and hearing everything you're doing and so it's it can be quite like you feel like they're going to judge you, but you just have to always nail it and then you're fine. <laughs> Presume you get some level of confidence of knowing that they probably can do your job, right? Like they're probably yeah. in awe of what you're able to do. Yeah, it's quite nice in that they know what it sounded like when mm. it was shot. And there's not a lot of people who will ever know that. Yeah. So even the sound recorders can't remember everything that sound you know when they shot it they can't remember how each scene sounded after the fact whereas these production the people who are cutting the film the director and the picture editor have seen it with the original raw audio over and over and over again mm. so when you suddenly give them this cleaned up uh you know movie um surround sound beautiful and they're just like oh the, now it's a sounding like a, a film you know mm. now it's a finally yeah, i'm connecting to the characters this is what i wanted so they really do appreciate it and Occasionally, the director's also the scriptwriter, and they really like it when the lines they wrote are now mm. audible all the way through, and they don't have clicks and you know shash all over them. It's it's really nice. 
And as a dialogue and ADR editor, at what stage are you coming on board a project? Well, early on, we're given a copy of the script a lot of the time, not always. Mm -hmm. So we can go through this and work out what's coming our way and what the timetable and budget might need to be. And then we say, we need this. And they go, well, no, you've only got that. Okay, fine, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it for that. And then uh, during the shoot, I'll also try to have some conversations with the production sound guy. Mm-hmm. We try and keep that link with them because we can see if there's any tricky scenes he's going to alert us about. Like there was a job I'm doing which has got a lot of rain all the way through it. I can't say what it is yet. It's a new okay. one, but it's raining the entire way through. Real rain right in front of the camera. And he's already been ringing up saying, by the way, this isn't going to sound great, but mm. I love a challenge, so I'm, <laughs> I'm getting ready for it. But uh, uh, after that, we will take a few sound files from them. Like, say they shot two scenes so far, he'll post them over to me and I'll have a look at them, make sure they are, they are corrupt, they all stay in sync, you know, just make sure that our workflow is going to be good when we get going. Mm-hmm. And then on a big budget film, our crew often starts about 10 to 12 weeks after they finish shooting. Right. So they've done what's called a director's cut put that together Mm -hmm. and then when they've got a sort of rough shape of the film that's when we start and they hand it over to us and can you talk a little bit more about your preparation you know when you're receiving those files and and how as well you're I guess putting together the soundscape or like a mood board for for your kind of other team members and the director to say this is how we're going to approach it yeah it's it's difficult to prepare for the film ahead of the editing phase but Mm -hmm. on the jobs where I get to see the dailies the rushes as they're being shot Mm -hmm. that's really useful because if we've also got a script as well it means your brain's already worrying about what research you can do what era is it set in right is it okay it's world war one I'm gonna go and get all this research and go to these museums and find out what I can about how they used to talk back then what was Mm -hmm. interesting because a big part of what I do is Uh, writing sort of lines and ideas for the crowds to do so they don't just come in and go rhubarb 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 iphone rhubarb you know (laughs) say things that we can use i see you know and if we do like i just i was shooting crowd on uh no time to die and there was uh a lot of rt um, in the backs of like there's a big plane uh, that they're running around in and there's loads of RT going on and so I went on YouTube and I looked at all these there's loads of videos of air, air traffic control talking to aircrafts and you can take ideas from that and then find out what codes or what places and change things and never use exactly what they're saying because that's that's just cheating but taking flavors from it and mm-hmm. also I, I take little recordings play them to the crowd guys there so that they get the flatness of the reading and the metering is correct you know because we just this is going to be on this film forever and we don't want to be embarrassed about it so we're trying to make it uh, uh, something we can really be proud of and if someone mm. zones right in on it someone who's a pilot would go oh yeah okay yeah and believe it you know so it's about the authenticity and yeah totally yeah selling selling it and then I'm wondering you know from start to finish at what like how do you know your job's done like is it someone saying yeah we've we've got it all sorted or is it more of an intuitive feeling of yeah this is this is wrapped it's it's totally open and shut it starts with uh being given that first turnover of the film Mm. so picture department hands us a cut then the audio at that point, all you've got is that basic mono from production, just the one boom mic and the clip on the mm-hmm. actors. That's it. There's silence. You know, there's no crowd. They don't talk on set. There's it's there's no car noises. There's nothing. It's just that. It's really minimal and quite mm-hmm. scruffy. Anyway, sometimes there will be key, key scenes that are really noisy on set, and then we jump to those first, clean those up. Then we just work our way through, get through it all in whatever time scale we've got and then we head to the mix theater basically at the end i've by this point shot some adr i've shot some crowd then we put it up on my machine we've got effects on a machine we've got foley on a machine and we've got the music that then comes in from the music department and two guys sit on a big mixing desk and just balance it all against each other and hopefully by this point it's 
it, you know, it kind of works together quite well because we're always sort of doing mini balances. So by the time we get there, it's in front of the director and we go, right, what do you want to change? And then we have three, four, five weeks with the director, sometimes only two, one week if it's a really low budget, but he's with us. And we go through the whole film over and over and over and over and over. And then it's done. It sounds good. And that is officially when most people go home. But I don't because I have extra things I have to do. I have to also make a version that is called the M&E. And -hmm. that's music and effects. So that is a version of the film that then goes off to every foreign country where they put in the foreign dialogue in place of the Mm -hmm. English dialogue. And it's not a case of just stripping out all the English dialogue. Mm-hmm. You have to strip it out in a way that everything else remains in the film. So say you're on set and someone's talking while they're tapping away on their phone like this. I have to keep those taps in, but take the words out mm-hmm. so that when they put the French version in, they've got the same tap. So it's the same film. It's completely the same film so that, that it's not two different sounding films. It's really difficult to do. They even replace the crowd if they hear any English. It's uh, time consuming. So you spend like another few days doing that. And then we also have to do TV friendly alternatives. So when we get the actors in, we have to get them to say like fudge instead (laughs) of, you know. And so (laughs) a lot of them hate doing it, but I have to provide these different alternative versions of the film. It's a big part. It's after the effects guys have gone. This is something else I have Mm. to do. It's just part of the deliveries. And uh, then finally, it's all put in a big box and it's done. (laughs) So, yeah, the dangerous ones are when you're working on a film that is then not released officially for several months Mm -hmm. because there's no hard out. You like the ones that end with a release date. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with COVID, obviously, a lot of those have changed. So there's a lot of you know what, maybe we should change that cut. Maybe we'll just revisit it and you, you end up going back in the mix theatre, updating everything again and again. It's quite time-consuming. And I mean, it sounds like quite a collaborative process, you know, lots of voices or lots of people in the room, particularly, you know, at that last stage, as you described with kind of all the screens. And I'm wondering, like, who you're in dialogue with most? You know, what is that process like? Actually, this is like the great thing about being a dialogue editor as opposed to an effects editor for me because on the whole you're in communication with the picture editor and often the director as well from quite early on and throughout the process for most directors the sound that was captured on set the take they chose on the set in the edit that's the one they want so they are very keen to talk to you to um, get it as clean and clear as they can and if they've got new lines they want to change because they always have a change or a new <laughs> line, you're the person to talk to about that. So you're, you're always talking to them. Plus, as much as you can do wonders with some actors in ADR, the thing is you're never going to fully really recreate the performance that was on set. So my number one priority is always to clean up the production mm-hmm. and only then if you really need it do the ADR so I don't usually have a lot of ADR unless they've asked for it yes I I would say that the person I'm most in contact with is my sound supervisor Mm -hmm. so that's Oliver he's our boss and then of course the director and the picture editor I don't really although we're in the same corridor the effects and the Foley guys we kind of are two branches that come together at the mix so there's most of my communication is upwards and Mm -hmm. they are in their own world and then we come together when we have to mix. I mean let's dig into ADR a bit more because it is something that kind of fascinates me and one element of it you kind of brought up and and, and touched upon there is that you can't fully recreate the performance you're never going to achieve that but what are you doing specifically to try and re-immerse actors in that environment and and how are you how are you facilitating you know that yeah that re-recording basically? ADR is a weird term because it actually stands for automated dialogue replacement, although it's not automated. It's often not dialogue. And <laughs> it's sometimes not replacement. So it's a weird one. But basically, it's the process of recording an actor after the fact and then inserting the lines into a film in a way that you should not notice they are not from the original production. That's the idea anyway. ADR is It's done for a range of reasons, like background noise or there was distortion on the mic or not being near enough to a mic or 
the lines changed or been added to or there's breaths and efforts because when they do action scenes, often that's a stunt guy. So you're going to have a face replacement and you're going to need the breaths to go into, you know, just there's weird reasons sometimes. Basically, as far as getting a performance, yeah, it's never going to be the same as it was on set. Uh, with the exception of animation, obviously, that's pretty good. But um, we do as much as we can to help the process uh, when it can't be avoided. So Mm. we always get the actors to watch the scene through a few times when they turn up. But sometimes the energy or the projection is just lacking because you can understand why, I mean, if they were in the trenches six months ago, freezing cold in full uniform, covered in mud, and climbing up ladders and talking and then six months later they're suddenly driven in a car in their jeans and t-shirt to a dark room where they just woke up and they're about to go off and shoot something set in modern day times yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're just not in that headspace Mm. they're not in the zone at all so one trick that we do to get their energy up is get them to do press-ups Oh, we get them to run up and down the corridor, oh, wow. jump on the spot. Yeah, there's, there's a million different things. If they have to do fight efforts, like that kind of thing, you can stand behind them and shake the upper body, like pull them around a bit if they don't mind. Or say they got a line that they said as they got out of a car. It's weird if you don't have that movement, if they just say it straight on on the mic, you don't believe it. You just you don't know why, but it just sounds stagnant. Mm. So get them sat on a chair and get them to stand up and say the line past the mic, even if it goes off a bit, because yeah. it would be done on set just as much as you can. And and something that you know I'm asking for you know personal reasons is <laughs> is that whenever I um, watch stuff with my parents, you know it comes up quite a lot that they'll complain that an actor's mumbling or you know they can't quite hear them. Is that a director's decision, you know, to keep it like that for authentic reasons or just that, you know, the the period or the setting doesn't require that they enunciate clearly? Or is there anything else that's accounting for that that you can kind of let us in on the trade secrets? I mean, essentially, it's the director's choice. Mm. They cast them and they told them how to act. And when they did it, take one, they didn't stop them. They kept, you know, so they obviously liked it and kept yeah. it. And so there are little things you can do to help enunciation, emphasis on S's and T's and sounds Mm. and things that your ear will pick up and work out. Because we've had times when the actor did that and the director didn't like it and you had to try and change it later. That's difficult, really difficult, because the mouth is clearly not enunciating. The Mm -mm. shape's not right. But on the whole, the problem is the director knows the script. They know the lines inside out. They've heard them. They've read them a thousand times and for an audience coming in fresh and hearing it for the very first time, it's a totally different experience, but nothing, they're never going to quite get that very first time experience again. So yeah, that's true. There, there is a bit of a, an issue sometimes in that they don't really understand that people need to hear every word. And can you kind of, you know, from your perspective, are you able to input on what you think needs maybe yeah. another take? You know, is there freedom in expressing your own opinion about what's needed? Yes, there. Uh, d- it depends on the director, totally. But the ones I've worked with, totally, they would be open to that. If you said part of my job is looking through all the takes, mm-hmm. uh, if, I, if there's a certain word that they garbled in particular, you just can't pick up on it. I would always look at all the other takes, all the other angles and find alternatives that I can show them and go, how about that one? How about that one? They are generally wanting the audience to hear it. It's just how married they are to that one performance they chose. But of course, they're open to you suggesting it. It's a big part of your job. They're expecting you to do it. And then because your job is so tied up with kind of all these, you know, softwares and technology, I'm wondering, I'm presuming that advances in technology have have changed or perhaps improved your job over the past few years. Is that the case? Yeah, the the biggest advancement came uh, a little bit before my time, about 25-ish years ago, when they made the jump from mag to actual uh, digital workstation. So mm-hmm. Pro Tools is the main one. That came out roughly 25 to 30 years ago. And it was a weird shift for those editors to to not be cutting with a little blade and to actually 
everything got immediately a lot faster mm-hmm. and integrated. And uh, since then, the improvements have been gradual, tiny, but actually quite recently, the software has become a lot better quicker the software we use is the same one most of the mixers use on the big mixing stages so everything i'm doing is getting carried right through the mix right so it means i can shape a lot more of the final film i'm not giving raw tracks to a mixer who's then going right let's start again what have we got it's it's really nice that in in the art you'll see a lot of the time editors also are credited as mixers in the film because the jobs are kind of meshing Mm. a little bit there's still some things they can do that we just can't do on Pro Tools, but it's just starting to meld together in an in a good way. But uh, yeah, the, the software I use to clean up the dialogue, it's called RX. It's a, it's, it's a magical, amazing software, and it's getting really good. And because of that, my tech count, the number of lines I get the actors to do for tech reasons mm-hmm. would have been things that would have been 40 cues before are now two or three cues because I can save so much more of it. Mm-hmm. If it's too reverby, I can take the room off and make it sound dry again. If it's distorted, I can heal the top of it. If it's an iPhone recording uh, that's, you know, the squash sound, you can create the top bit of the sound again and recover that part of the sound and make it sound as good as a normal mic. There's mm-hmm. amazing things I can do now. It's clearly a role that requires a lot of, you know, attention to detail and focus. And so I'm wondering how you stay sharp, you know, how are you paying attention to all these like different elements? I hope I am staying sharp. I don't really know. <laughs> um, I try and sleep well. <laughs> That's a big, big one. I sleep a lot as much as possible. <laughs> when I'm cutting, though, I try to remember to get up from the desk every couple of hours mm-hmm. because you can start getting the claw. You know, where you're just... <laughs> your hand on the mouse can't straighten ever and uh, you you do get like um pain along your wrist and all all of us have got like slight back problems and things so I really try and think about ergonomics and it's weird but you're in one position for so long you have to think where's the screen height okay have I got do I need glasses no okay do I have everything at the right level that I'm not going to get back pain basically and I have a dog over there Jeffrey and so he comes and sits literally um similar to where he is now right next to me and it means that I have to walk him every two to three hours for his tiny Mm. bladder and um, that means that I get some fresh air it's the cigarette break of of the modern era Honestly, it keeps me sane because um, I would never get up. I wouldn't even get up to pee if I didn't have the dog. It's uh, not healthy otherwise. And also a good thing about uh, not getting bogged down is not focusing just on one tiny little scene all day long. If Mm. I can, I'd like to jump around, do an action-y scene, do a quieter scene, uh, because you can find you overworking one little bit and you'll run out of time. And it's just nice to take a fresh perspective, come back to it another time and then everything's prepped to a a good overall standard rather than going nuts on one bit, forgetting another bit and everything's all patchy then. So um, just being balanced and looking at each scene fresh as often as possible, jumping around, that's quite useful. Do you have a favourite part of the job? I actually do. Uh, A favourite part of the job is probably the amount of face time you get with the director. It's... it's, um, (laughs) It sounds really selfish, but it's it's one of the more unique parts of that of my role in the sound crew mm-hmm. is that they want you to bring the story as clear as possible, to bring all the clarity you can to the story. And that is why they are very interested in talking to you from the beginning. And it means that by the end, after you've done all these ADR sessions with the director, you've you've uh, well, some directors, most directors go to ADR, not all, but uh, the ones who come to all the ADR sessions and then they are in the final mix and they're like, hey, Rachel, and you're like, hey, director X. <laughs> and and it just, you know, you know each other and then they give you a little crew gift sometimes at the end, like, thanks so much. And then, you know, more of a relationship and then they'll use you again on the next one mm-hmm. and the next one. And I'm wondering, are you able to like enjoy either watching or listening to films in general just because I I assume you're kind of always attuned to the soundscapes but then also the films that you've worked on or are you kind of again always listening for things that maybe you could have like refined Uh, slightly more I actually if I'm watching tv and I see one of my the films I worked on is on I will 
I will egotistically hop over and watch it for a bit. <laughs> but it's it's weird because it always brings back every little detail that comes flooding mm. back to your memory. Like I was watching um, The Martian again the other day, and it's a rare one that I can actually watch over and over because uh, Matt's performance is just so solid and the script is great. And and it had a lovely, simple but atmospheric soundtrack, and it was such a joy to work on but for some other films you you have memories of the difficult ADR sessions and oh that actor was really horrible (laughs) you know and 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 um but on the whole it's quite positive I do like watching it back because we try and you know work our asses off on these films and so when we watch it back oh it actually sounded really good forget the stresses that actually came out really nice but some other films I didn't work on it sounds terrible to say it but some other films I can tell what's ADR and what's not. Right. And I'll, I'll sit there and go, hey, that's ADR. That <laughs> yeah, yeah, ADR. And it, I'm a nightmare to watch it. I even do it in the cinema, ADR. Yeah. Like, oh, shut up. <laughs> and I'm not saying mine's perfect, but there's just an acceptable level of believability. And sometimes, for a variety of reasons, they don't quite go above that line. I just, mm. I can, it just pings out to me, or the music's too hot, or maybe the lines are too mumbly I just oh it does my head in when something's just not right and I wished I could have been on it and I don't know if it bothers other people but it ruins it for me so I, I I'm I've actually find some films difficult to watch if yeah. they don't sound as good as they should but it's also quite invisible so <laughs> well that's the thing I was going to ask if it's a role that you wish there was more recognition for because you know there's like videos you can see now where you see a film where it's before the grade and after the grade and mm. you see how much color like lifts the the yeah. frame and brings and the, the story VFX. to life exactly slide in the, I and you don't really do get that. that for dialogue right well no I uh I did talk once with uh, Beck too, and I was allowed to show the before and after for um, 1917 right. for a couple of um, scenes. So I played a short, like two minute, here's the original, here it is with dialogue cleaned up, and then I showed it with the final mix. So it was like A, B, C. But that is rarely, it's even, not even allowed. It's just, it could be construed as you're putting down the sound recordist on set. It's treading, it's difficult. And so you, you kind of just have to go, oh, yeah, no, we didn't really touch it. It was great. But it's, uh, yeah, it can be frustrating. I, be- I believe years ago on the Die Hard box set, you can watch um, on uh, Die Hard 1, they, they had the option on the DVD of watching an action scene with no foley and then with no effects and then with no music. That was really cool. And that was kind of one of those early things I saw and went, huh, yeah, okay. <laughs> They add all the footsteps. Yeah. Oh my god! Like no one realizes the amount of stuff that gets added. You know, mm. all car chases pretty much a shot mute. Completely yeah, mute. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I, I need to get a foley editor on on here yeah. one day because I'm fascinated by that as well. And I mean, that's yeah. a good jumping off point to talk about some of the more specific projects that you've worked on because I, you mentioned The Martian, and I'm I'm really interested in the kind of yeah, the, I guess the sci-fi genre because you worked on Alien Covenant as well. So when you know when the when the dialogues you're working on are meant to be from another planet, and you kind of don't really have maybe the template or like a place to research where they've come from in the same way as you were talking about, you know, with, with um, crowd of no time to die and air traffic control. I'm wondering how you go about creating them. Well, you just, it's quite freeing a film like that. Like on both those films, we had times where you had to feel like the dialogue had been transmitted over a long distance. Mm. So there's times where plugins can do that in a weird way they have settings called you know pa from whatever but it we wanted something that was actually transmitted something that was real so i actually went to a car boot sale near here and picked up an old transistor radio that works on shortwave and then got bloke we know to make a transmitter and then we literally transmitted it to that radio and recorded the radio so from another room you know across the corridor and then it it, it just had that quality of actually having been transmitted and a good place you can hear that is in the Martian in Mission Control where Matt's come off of Mars and he wakes up and he talks to Mission Control and it comes out over the PA Mm -hmm. and they all start cheering all that stuff that's being broadcast over that's my little transistor radio Uh, another way actually for that film we added authenticity 
is to get real NASA guys. So we were lucky enough to be able to talk to some people who currently now working in mission control and they all had a barbecue one weekend at their mate's house. And so they got a microphone up and zoomed us like this. And then we went, uh, okay, you guys record your end. And then we just threw scenarios at them like, um, okay, the launch is in one minute. Do your last things you would do for your last one minute. And then it takes up and it ex- takes off and explodes. What would you do? And they just went, and then we are go for propulsion. And they just went into it. Like, <laughs> Reeled it off, yeah. Flat, 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 flat. And that's all what you hear when the rocket's taking off. That's all them. They're real cool. guys. And then you have a little bed of crowd underneath. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you can't get that flatness with, you, you can try, but it, that total just information only flatness that they do. Mm. It was just like, oh, you heard it and you went, yep, believe it. Totally. Absolutely. 100%. Is that level of believability something that you've trained yourself to kind of hear, you know, where where you're confronted in those situations, you know, because there's no school for that. So are you just kind of reacting to a gut instinct? Yeah, I mean, you you listen to the real thing a lot when you're researching it and then you see other films and you also have the experience of having gone and got actors to do their versions of it. It's, It's just not the same. It's you just know it's not. You you would know too if you heard A and B, one you know T minus twenty seconds. It, it'd be like, <laughs> it's, it's just there's just a different way of doing it, and it's for that kind of film. It really needed to sound real. And another film where presumably everything had to sound very real is 1917, particularly with the subject matter and you know the people that have been through war, and you're you're wanting to respect their experience. And so again, I'm wondering how you go about recreating a very specific period in time. You know, how are you sourcing those elements or creating an environment to to capture stuff that is incredibly real? Yeah, I loved working on that film. It was great. There was a it was like a central mission to create this entirely realistic world around the two central characters, but in a way that would feel so natural that your ear wouldn't uh, go to it and be distracted too much. So we had to make it of that era, but accessible. So they're just talking like mates talking to each other, not like mm. tally you know, not too, but but still saying the correct thing, the right in the sure. right lingo but just seem like normal everyday guys, like you're there in present day. It, mm. it, you know, it is a hard balance. But as soon as we started the job, we took a little trip over to Belgium and went to a load of World War One battle sites. And there was so many uh, good museums and I got a load of reading materials and watched documentaries about just trying to get in the right headspace to get the information I needed to write the stuff they were going to use. Mm-hmm. on set and then we shot it actually all usually you shoot in a a big adr studio but we shot outside in a field because it's all outside and it just has a nice natural acoustic mm-hmm. you know slap off a nearby building it was really nice and we the key thing we did was rather than usually you'd get uh, like 20 voice actors in young men you know but instead we did half voice actors and half actual current territorial army in a similar way to using real nasa in the marsh and we just knew if you have injected the realness into it it's going to help and it it did in so many ways because the blend of the actors with the real military personnel meant we were able to use the actors to bring that level of performance to it but the military personnel brought that experience and again that just direct flatness getting things done and they were all really good mates so you had that camaraderie sort of built in. And by the end of the day, everyone was just getting on great. It was like the hottest day of the year and everyone was covered in sweat, but it was so good. And we even had like stretches and got them, you know, carrying their friends across the field <laughs> on stretches and, and lying on the ground injured. And they were fully acting everything out. Mm. So it's not just standing in front of a mic in a dark room, just doing line number one. Yeah, you know, It was a totally different experience. And everyone brought their A game to it and it was just it's a testament to how good it was that the director often didn't know what was you know from set what was added and he left most pretty much all of it intact which is great because he doesn't like to feel like it's been added he'll he'll react badly to that and so it just sort of sunk in and just became part of the natural environment which is what we wanted 
And presumably, again, it's a very different experience working on something like 1917, where there's lots of crowds. It's a very cacophonous environment, as opposed to something like Philomena, where you might have just Steve Coogan and Judy Dench in a scene, and it's just the two of them talking back and forth. How does that change the nature of your job? Yeah, well, it's funny because no matter what the genre or the busyness of the film, and no matter how long you've got, you still want to bring everything to the best level you can. So the pressure's always on in, in, inside me. The pressure's always on when I'm working and always felt by all of us, no matter what the budget and the director. Until you actually watch an M&E, you never realise how much of the sound is added. Any genre, any business, mm. every footstep, every head turn, everything, that a cup down, a hand pat on, on a hand, everything is 100% recreated and added in. So sure, you know, it might be... A, quiet film in terms of crowd but all the cars all the doors every bird you hear everything was added and there's flashbacks there's you know there was just there was other stuff going on but Mm -hmm. it's true some films have more crowd work than some of the others but it can mean that a quiet film like Philomena the dialogue's then more exposed and therefore they're leaning on it more to do it to pull its weight also some of the bigger films have got so much going on you can almost hide the dialogue amongst all the big action set pieces and all the crowd and the soaring music you know so there's pluses and minuses to both really and crowd can be a great tool in giving energy and flavor to a scene so if it's a really quiet film or you don't have the budget for crowd you're left quite exposed and so the atmosphere have to do more work or if the cut's not great you're going to notice it and so you add lines to keep things ticking along it just there's different problems present themselves and it's obviously a job situated in technical processes but all of the things that you've spoken about so far kind of reveal to me that it's clearly a job with a lot of you know creative problem solving where you're required to think on your feet so I'm wondering if you consider it to be a creative role yeah, absolutely. I'd say there's a there's a kind of a huge misconception with a lot of film industry jobs, even from others within the film industry, uh, about which jobs contain creativity and which ones are tech. Mm-hmm. We've always been called tech, like the tech awards or the sound awards, but it's it's an old hang up that we're not. It's it should be really called craft. I think it's a craft, not a tech job. Um, you could argue maybe focus puller or grip maybe might be tech but again even I don't know because I haven't done those jobs what I do know is that no two sound editors will produce the same work we come at it from different ways and it's going to sound different I think the name sound editor actually might be a reason that throws people off sound designer I guess might be a, a better term what we do has technical elements sure but I would most definitely, yeah, class it as craft. The same as costume designer is craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, we create the oral landscape, which the audience connects to what they're seeing, and they create a more visual part of that. But we're both creating the world that puts the viewer in in the correct place because you can't see it; it's hidden, and so therefore it's overlooked quite often. If you see like variety, they do film reviews and at the bottom they put all the heads of department they never put sound and it really bothers me (laughs) you know or those main on ends casting by and then you have at the end of a film uh you know uh music by and there's never rarely very rarely sound by it's just not um kind of overlooked because yeah it's invisible yeah like you fall through the cracks I feel like yeah the costume designer comparison is quite apt actually because if you think about it like they're given fabric but then the shapes or the textures or the cut you know is all down to them and I I guess I consider it the same way yeah you're given this kind of canvas but then you're the ones that are, are, are molding it and sculpting it absolutely and then given also that women in this realm are also quite a rare breed you know has that ever also been a source of frustration or difficulty like you maybe haven't been given the opportunities that you think that you deserve or anything else yeah it's crazy to think still that a lot of women entering the film industry are facing such difficulties just getting their foot in the door or or being given the same level of opportunities as their male counterparts but I'm still relentlessly optimistic that a shift is starting and I get I do get contacted by a lot of female graduates quite regularly looking for advice and ways into the industry so I am glad I can be there to sort of help as much as I can with tips and and guidance and stuff but 
for me, I was starting out 15, 20 years ago, ugh, and there was no online forum. There was no women in film. Uh, there was no one I could contact. There was no visible sign, really, of women in sound at all, not that I could see. Um, so when I started out, I actually I just worked so hard every single day just to be sort of noticed and considered. I think it made me into a hard, harder working person. I was lucky that my very first job as a runner, I, that I was hired by a woman for that role right. uh, who was actually trying to get more females into Delaney at that exact moment I was looking because it was mainly men at Delaney there when I started. Mm. It's not now. I mean, it's, it's, it's changed. But most of the time, luck has played a huge role for me. I was insanely lucky that um, I was spotted in, in an ADR session and from then I was given an opportunity to be a sound assistant. I didn't know anyone. My uncle's not a producer. I don't have any connections. Mm. So you just have to keep your head down, work as hard as you can and just hope someone is walking past and going, oh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe you. Has mentorship played a role in your career? Like other people that you looked up to or still look up to or look to for support? Actually, yeah, there was Early on, there was um, there was a great guy called Peter Gleaves who was my ADR mixer when I was an assistant. He's he's no longer with us, sadly, but he was he was great. He taught me how to act when you're around important clients like directors mm -hmm. and actors because that was a big job for him because I would just sit there and just blurt stuff out and it was just terrible. And <laughs> he taught me to stay calm and listen to what the director really wants and figure out the right, right thing to say in the right time to encourage the best performance from the actor. It's, it's stuff that he was just the best in the country, probably in the world at it. He, he was so calm, nothing phased him, and everyone loved him, you know, and he, he could just say, oh, maybe just, just lift your head up and just speak from your chest, maybe, and just, yep, yeah, that's it, the match, got it. Mm -hmm. Like, I would just go, oh, I don't know, maybe you sound more frightened. You know, I, I wouldn't know what to say, and he'd just, he'd say it in a way that the actor goes, ah, I know what you mean. Yeah. It was great. And then, of course, Oliver Tani, who was the guy who gave me my first start as a sound assistant back in the day, and he's been instrumental in my career throughout by um keeping me on <laughs> i've been loyal uh, to his sound career ever since and um he also literally is the best at his job that there is and obviously you've worked on you know a lot of high profile and big budget productions and that might be uh, attributed to, to loyalty to that sound crew but i'm assuming also it's an ambition within yourself and i'm wondering if you consider yourself to be ambitious and and perhaps if you could talk about what that ambition looks like in the context of your role you know how do you progress where do you see yourself in the next few years time uh, well i'm actually just starting to get jobs as supervising sound editor which is the the higher rank that, right. that oliver is on i'm coming the job with him next which is great because um, that's kind of the highest place you can go to in town. But I'm insanely ambitious always <laughs> to the point of distraction. It's, it's um, not just about the job, but it's to earn the respect of my peers. I think that would be to be able to sit in a room of established, long, you know, long-standing sound editors and, and feel like I deserve to be there and, and I can talk about the same things they're talking about and... <laughs> And and that's my main ambition. It's, it's also to feel at ease, to, to just walk into a mixed theatre and just not be nervous and just get it. I'm still nervous. I think it the nerves help, but part of you's always, you know, part of you's always sweating profusely while you're doing it. And I wish at some point I know I'm going to get to the point where I've hit every problem I'm going to hit and I know how to sort everything mm. out. Weirdly, that's my ambition. But I do have the ambition to boost the awareness of the creativity of the role it's just not fair really the way it is at the moment but having the head of sound be considered <clears throat> an equal among all the head of departments like the casting agent and mm -hmm. the costume designer they all they all give an equal part and sound is a very small percentage of the budget it's often one two percent maybe a, of a budget and it brings so much to a film it's a very cost-effective, yeah, part, department, yeah, I guess. Very, yes, indeed. Can I also ask where the nerves come from? Is that to do with, yeah, as you say, like encountering the unknown? It's just, it's just me. <laughs> no, I just, uh, I just have a nervous energy. It's, it's just wanting everything to be perfect and mm. uh, wanting to impress people. 
the the clients in particular all the time and yeah. you set such high standards for yourself and um, i did from the beginning really but um it means that it's you have to be on your a game the entire time mm. so it's a body of your own back really but it's 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 healthy it, it i do i do think it's helped me uh, mm. i don't ever want to sit back and take it easy on the job because i don't think i'd give it my all is there something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or you know perhaps you know that you you wish you'd learn earlier yeah i know it sounds like a cliche kind of what we've been talking about i wish i believed in myself a bit earlier that i had more confidence and knew what i wanted to do with my career earlier actually i think i did waste a good few years not really having a clue trying camera trying boom hopping of course these have helped me and i understand a bit of what goes on on production on set but there's i'm jealous of these young graduates fresh out of southampton or lipper and they come they've got their sound engineering degrees and they're just whiz kids and they just know all the terminology and they can just they just know how the mixing desk function you know they just i i'm very jealous of, of that if i could go back and start again i would go to a course there one of those yeah. places and, and just grab it with both hands and then finally i'd love to know if there's a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem yeah i was thinking about this i actually they, I, i've chosen a film called persepolis it was yes uh, Satrapi. yeah Majan Satrapi. it was out originally out in 2007 i think it wasn't streamed till about 2014 but it's this monochrome animation and it's about satrapi herself growing up in iran in like the late 70s early 80s and she's there's a horrendous the iran iraq wars going on but she's this rebellious sort of punk loving young girl and and you see her trying to find her own identity all the while her family's being executed brutally one by one and it, it doesn't sound like the kind of film that you, it would be entertaining but it really is i saw it because it was a screener i, I did love it because it was such it's a personal story it's a really personal story for her mm. but it's also intermixed with this national tragedy and it's still entertaining to watch the animation and the soundtrack by the way just make us see it all through her eyes and it's so charming and alarming as well it's just a weird contradiction and it's fresh and accessible even if like you know nothing about the history of iran which i didn't and i still mm -hmm. enjoyed it so that shows how powerful it is it's just it's a really nice film yeah it's not one i've thought about for a lot of years but actually yeah, you saying yeah i've yeah, remembered how how powerful i found it as well you're right yeah that perfect mix of kind of beguiling and harrowing <laughs> rachel thank you so much for speaking with me today it's been such a pleasure i've learned i've learned so much i mean i have so many more questions but yeah it's it's been a joy to speak with you you too thanks for having me Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. If you're particularly interested in the sound department, I recommend tuning into my episodes with sound designer Anna Burtmark and music supervisor Jen Moss. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday, but in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Thank you.